Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, All Things Dominic Dunn, where we continue to swim with the swans this week, making our way into episode two of Feud, Capote versus the Swans. Thank you for joining me today. Lots of new listeners out there. Big welcome to you. Lots of returning investigators, too. Y'all rock my world. In this episode, in the series, episode two, Feud is really showing the breakdown of the fallout of Truman Capote after the release of La Cote Basque 1965. Truman burns all of his swans in some way or another. Babe Paley at this time is very sick. The swans, the gals are going to rally around Babe. In this episode, we meet Lee Radzewell and Joanne Carson. We learn a lot more about the abuse of Truman's lover, John O'Shea. And we also meet Lily Mae Falk in flashback, Truman Capote's mother. We're going to cover the episode that you saw on screen, but supplement it with the Alicia's version of the story. What would I want you to know watching these scenes? What's the real story behind the scenes? In this episode, we have four main players to unpack in this one. Lots to go through. But before we begin this week's investigation, I do have a few fine folks to thank for their support over on Patreon. Holy cats, y'all are incredible. Big love and thanks to our newest Done and Done supporters, Funhouse Mirror, Beth, Carol F., Emily S., Martin H., Amy M., Giselle, Copper K., Auntie Lolo, and Beth M. Y'all are simply incredible. A big welcome to all the new folks in the community. Thank you, thank you for your support in this creative endeavor, new and sustaining patrons. You truly are the magic. If you too would like to get in on early episodes, ad-free episodes, weekly not done yet, and other bonuses, Patreon.com slash done and done is the place to go to find out more about all those extras. Today it is to four new players in this Truman Capote drama Lee, Joanne, John, and Lily May. What is their real story with Truman Capote? Let's investigate. Episode new content. We have moved into episode two of Feud Capote versus the Swans. And in this one, I'm going to high level the action in the television episode to get to some of these backstories and spider webs that make this episode a bit more meaningful, perhaps. Babe Paley, bless her heart, is most certainly suffering from cancer. Babe is sick. We knew this from the Alicia's version of the last episode. Babe has already been suffering, already been diagnosed. By the time Truman releases his burn book, for lack of a better word. Here the swans are protecting their friend Babe, who is still making her very type A, high-functioning, has-to-have-it-all-covered world happen while she is in treatment. And her husband, Bill Paley, has turned attentive. He's a changed man, attentive with a capital A. 
We're going to roll into the funeral of Anne Woodward. I do want to just get back to mentioning that no one is mentioning Anne Woodward in the fallout from the Lakote Basque 1965 piece. Anne Woodward's death is certainly tragic, as well as the fate of her sons. We have covered Anne in full detail back in the Tumas's Grenville's Woodward arc back in episodes 28, 29, and 30. Post-funeral of Anne in this intro scene, we do have the ladies who lunch, doing just that, lunching and drinking at Lakote Basque. Here we enter another swan into the picture, Lee Radzewell. Here at this scene, goodness, Babe's done. Babe's like, can we just not discuss Truman? He's reaching out to all of us. He's making his way in. He's trying to slither back. And CZ Guest, bless her heart, who really is a very loyal friend to Truman, is like, give it a rest. She is his most devoted. Slim Keith here, warning them all. They do form up, not to avenge Ann Woodward, but to protect Babe, their friend on a real level here. I do have a number of reactions from the social set. We set the stage a little bit for this in our episode last week, but I do have a few more bits and bobs here I think that are worth mentioning about the continuing fallout as it really does just rain down in this episode in all the ways. Taking a few of these from George Plimpton's Truman Capote, in which various friends, enemies, acquaintances, and detractors recall his turbulent career. This first one up is from John Knowles. He imagined that all these ladies were going to sit around and say, Oh, that little rascal, look at what he's done this time. Isn't he too much? And then they'd invite him to the yacht. Well, it's all right what you do, but you don't do it in the street and frighten the horses. But he did. He went public, using in some cases the names of real people. And in other cases, it was incredibly transparent, obvious, dirty linen being washed in public. So, they dropped him like a hot potato, which he never, ever expected. He was completely unstrung. He had built up this incredible edifice of social connections and great success, and it crumbled overnight, literally. The problem was that he had no stature socially speaking. He had no family. He was only an ornament. There was nothing for him to fall back on. You could drop Truman Capote overnight because you weren't going to alienate anybody. Truman was just all by himself out there. I got one more coming from Mary Lazar, the wife of Swifty. I remember we were in Sydney, Australia at Christmas time when the Ettergans and Slim Keith, right after the Esquire article had come out, and Truman sent a wire to Slim that said, I forgive you, Big Mama, a joke, but she never forgave him. Slim Keith will not ever, ever forgive Truman. If we go back to this scene, we have each other, Slim says. And honestly, I'm not exactly sure how Lee Radziwill gets slung up in this mess. Lee and Truman Capote were often off doing their own private little thing. 
Lee and her sister, Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy Onassis, are not too much mocked in Lakote Basque 1965. Truman Capote really, really loves Lee. Truman calls her Dear Princess. It is actually an engraved item from Lee to Truman with the St. Cecilia quote about answered prayers that gives Truman the inspiration for the naming of his unfinished novel. Let's unpack a little bit about Dear Princess Lee Radswell talking about her first meeting with Truman Capote many, many moons before this piece is published. I want to unpack their relationship just a little bit. Lee Radziwill says, I met Truman in the late 50s. It must have been at dinner. I don't know whose or where. Then he became part of my life. He was an original. I was a little leery, but I was interested to meet him. He felt that he was there to amuse, to be on and entertain. In a way, he was like Holly Golightly in that he felt he had to give the equivalent of what she gave. That he not only had to amuse, but to storytell and invent. Of course, each time he told the story, the next time it was more elaborate. The next time even more so, until you wondered if he could still believe it himself. The stories with time became more and more exaggerated, until it was total, full imagination, sort of looking at another world. I never thought he was a dangerous person to know, even though the exaggerations got far out of hand. If he'd tell you that you were there when you knew you had not been there, then I was no longer interested in the story. Perhaps he wanted to please too much. He not only wanted to please you by storytelling, but also by gossip. I've never been very interested in gossip, and I think that was a disappointment to him. In the beginning, the stories were more about his family, his childhood. In the end, they were much more superficial, about his society friends, his lunches and dinners, about so-and-so's jewels and how she spread them all out, stories like that. It was odd because it was so different from the purity of his work, that he could be so intrigued by what would seem to me so meaningless. It's important to say that he did appreciate himself as an artist, but he didn't understand that he was being treated like a toy. Lee Radziwill knows what she's in for. She has known Truman by the time 1975 rolls around 15 plus years. And what did she just say? He didn't know he was being treated like a toy. That's going to come back around. I want to unpack just a little bit more about the awfully cozy relationship that Truman and Lee Rods will have. Going to go ahead and go through a few more quotes here and unpack this Lee story a little bit more. Because Lee and Truman, super, super close from John Knowles in order to introduce this next segment. John Knowles says he had Joanne Carson as a friend after the Coat Basque mess. But God knows, Lee Radswell and Truman were also close at one time. She was as close to him as anybody. He adored her for a long time. He thought she could do no wrong. 
essence of elegance. Peter Beard, associate of Lee Radswell's, says about the relationship between Truman and Lee, there was no way he was in love with Lee. I'd say he was in love with her as far as he could manipulate her success in competition with Jackie. He was like an artist in life, exhilarated by what he could do. Unpacking this a little bit more, Lee Radswell has a few things to say about Truman. We had so many differences that I really didn't think he could go on imagining that he was in love with me. Y'all, I'm not kidding. They really were pretty chummy. People were talking about them for a while. He envisaged me as he wished to. We had cozy times that were brotherly and sisterly. The whole point of our relationship was that Truman had a great passion for me. Babe was this exquisite object to him, and I was more tangible. There was something about me that got him. I knew he loved me, adored me as I did him. There was no question about that. He came to stay with us in Portugal. The children were about six and seven. It was a very isolated, lonely place opposite Libson. There was no high life, and we had no jet setters staying with us. We had a boat we went off on every day. It couldn't have been quieter. He was at his very best because he didn't have to perform, except he liked to try to for the children. He was very good with children because that was the best side of his mind, the pure side. The children both had birthdays during that time, and I have photographs of Truman and my husband, Stas, dancing around the table doing the polka. He was delightful then. I thought he might be easily bored, but I don't think he was easily bored as long as he had good things to read. Now, the one swan that we sort of left in the dust through Capote's Coterie was Lee Radzewell. Her story is fascinating, multi-layered, lots of different bits. But do you know that Truman Capote will write a play for Lee to manifest her acting skills? So I want to talk about a few more quotes about Laura, this play that Truman Capote wrote, and how the release of that all goes down. Stephen M. L. Aronson says, He wrote Laura for Lee Radswell, adapting it from the Vera Casparine novel that Otto Preminger had made into that wonderful 1944 film with Gene Tierney. He adapted it as a television movie as a vehicle for Lee, he had in mind that she would soar and take off a private jet. Such a fiasco that vehicle turned out to be, like an unmechanized wheelchair tethered to the ground. Lee Radzel says about this, It had nothing to do with practical matters. I never went to Truman and said, Listen, Truman, I long to be an actress. How do you go about it? It took a great deal of time to talk me into it because... I thought it was stunningly presumptuous, not to mention scary. Then he convinced me, and I thought, well, I don't mind sticking my neck out. I think I know what's going to happen, but I'm game. The whole idea was conceived by him, and it was out of love. It was a driving force of his to create this career for me. I never regretted it. I regretted having gone that far, having gone through all that criticism and not continuing. I regretted not going on to do a George Kelly play with Maureen Stapleton, a film with Sean Connery, both of which I was offered, and a few things like that. 
I certainly didn't want to stop, but my husband wouldn't let my children leave London to be with me, and I felt they were my first obligation. This is from Tommy Phipps. <laughs> Laura came up, he says. I guess Lee Radswell must have said to Truman something like, you know, I want to be an actress. He hadn't the slightest idea of how to do it, to write dialogue or how to construct a television play or anything. He asked me if I would do it with him, and I said I would. He went off to Verbier. I adapted the movie for Lee. I sent him the script, and he wrote back glowing letters that it was just wonderful. It didn't have one change. So he had nothing to do with it at all. Nothing. Terrible reviews. Unfair, because it was perfectly respectable. George Plimpton recalls about this, wow, premiere of Laura. It doesn't go great. George Plimpton says, I remember Truman persuaded Johnny Carson, they were neighbors in the UN Plaza building, to give a party on the night of the broadcast. Television sets, a remarkable number of them were set around the apartment so that no matter where you were, sitting or standing, there was Lee playing Laura. It didn't work, which was sad, and of course that was emphasized by people eventually getting up and moving away from the TV sets to smoke and talk. It must have been harrowing for Truman, much less Lee. Going to have a few more chime-ins here from Lee Radziwill. She says he dedicated Thanksgiving Visitor to me. He wanted me to come down to Alabama and see it being filmed by Frank Perry. It was a fleeting visit, quite a different cup of tea from what I had been led to believe about his relatives and his aunt. I met certain relatives and an aunt who said, I just can't believe what Truman has made us out to be in the way he's talked about his childhood. We were a very decent, well-off family, and he's made it to be quite another story. She was hurt by it and couldn't understand why he found it necessary to invent this woeful childhood. Frank Perry filming that Thanksgiving Visitor film says about Truman, he came down to Alabama and brought Lee Radzwill. The people in the motel were all a Twitter because a princess was coming. Princess Radzwill? What do you say to a princess? Do you say your highness? Really, in the coffee shop. <laughs> uh, yeah, Truman and Lee traveled together. Can you imagine bringing Lee Radzwill to... <laughs> Monroeville, Alabama. Lee and Truman, super tight. Lee and her sister Jacqueline get off a little bit better than some of the other ladies mentioned in Lacote Basque 1965. Truman will talk about her, though, at least through Lady Ina Coolberth, the stand-in for Slim Keith's character. Truman doesn't write about Lee and Jackie the way he wrote about Babe, but what did he say through Lady Coolberth? In Lacote Basque, Lady Coolberth says, If I were a man, I'd fall for Lee myself. She's marvelously made, like a Tanagra figurine. Older sister Jackie is given Truman's treatment as well. <laughs> Lady Coolberth reluctantly admits about Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy Onassis. Very photogenic, of course, but the effect is a little unrefined, exaggerated. Together, Truman describes the Bouvier sisters as a quote-unquote pair of Western geisha girls. That's about as bad as the Bouvier sisters come off. However, Lady Ina Coolberth 
will go on and tell of being raped as a teenager by Joe Kennedy, saying that she was a guest of Kick Kennedy's one night. And Lady Ina Coolberth says in text, quote, the old bugger slipped into my bedroom. All those Kennedy men are the same. They're like dogs. They have to pee on every hydrant, unquote. Again, here it is so much worse about the men than it is the women. The thing I think that is really interesting about the way Truman writes of Jackie and Lee here, there's no mention of Jackie's first ladiness, her career in the White House, anything that happened to her in the 60s or the 70s. This is one of the big indicators to me that I think Truman really is going back to the mid-50s to source the well of his content for Lakote Basque. So here, back in the television series, they, the ladies, lunching, are talking about, well, you know, some friendships run their course. And these friendships are our armies talking about the women. <laughs> Lee, dumping him opens us up for a better, different kind of friend in the future. And of course, all the swans are mad about the misogyny saying gay men must be more prone to it. Again, CZ, Truman's defender here. Truman loves women. Babe is still mad. Slim is determined to get everybody's word that we stand united and destroy him. And Lee says, I'm in, honey. So the plan, right? Go out with other homosexuals. The evenings that Truman lives for go with anybody but him. Let him be stuck at home in that sad little apartment at the UN. No notes, no flowers, reject them all. He's going to drink and call and weep and beg and simper. And CZ Guest, again, loyal to Truman. We're going to talk about her in a minute. She's like, this is weak and deliberately small. Babe, growing tired of all of it. Babe is out. We move to the opening intro here within the series. I want to... Read one more thing by Lee Radswell here, going back to that initial quote that we opened with that he didn't understand he was being treated like a toy. Lee Radswell says he didn't understand that he was being treated like a toy. That's part of what destroyed him. The rest was his consuming fear that he wasn't going to be able to live up to his own artistic expectations as well as everyone else's. What started his decline, I believe, was his fear that he'd lost his self-discipline. And there was no way he could get it back. He'd tell me what agony. And this was years before he was writing answered prayers. It was to confront the long legal pad every morning. He said he went through that every day of his life. He'd think of every excuse possible to avoid it. Get up, sharpen 50 pencils, go back to his pad, make a telephone call. Writing never came to him easily. He was such a perfectionist. Every preposition was of the utmost importance. He was a purist. Every word was written in his minuscule handwriting. All the time I was with Truman, during all those years, he never worked when we were together. He'd always go to his room. He'd always take the afternoon off and perhaps wrote a bit. But it was never more than, I'll see you at lunch because I have to write a bit. He had to be prepared to write. He had to make sure nothing was going to disturb him and that the phones were off, that no car was 
going to come down the driveway, no interferences. He never carried his manuscripts around. In fact, I never saw him working. We went through New Orleans together. To Morocco, we took some sailing trips. Once we were with the Agnellis, crossing from the Yugoslavian coast back to Italy. All the furniture, all the people were roped down because it was so rough. Truman screamed for three days. It was scary. Actually, he never had any curiosity to see much of a city or absorb any foreign atmosphere. New Orleans was perhaps the most at home I ever saw him, but in Morocco, he might as well have been in a hotel room at any Hilton. He loved Paul Bowles' The Sheltering Sky, so I thought going there would intrigue him, the sensuality of the people and the country. I went with him to that terrible place, Cozumel, the beginning of the end. It's hard to say when the beginning of the end did start, because it would start, and then it would stop. Then it would make you very hopeful. But he was terribly depressed there, and that was frightening. He was immobilized. Anyway, we got out of Cozumel. I chartered a small plane and got him to the Paley's in Nassau. I knew there was a hospital there if necessary. We went on to Miami, and he was okay for a while. One wasn't worried in New Orleans, which I longed to go to since I'd never been and I couldn't think of anybody more marvelous to go with than Truman. The heat was overwhelming. Nevertheless, in the evening, he'd sit around with his scotches and talk late into the evening. He carried this little black doctor's bag like an ancient country doctor's. I'd never seen those except in old movies. It was stuffed with pills. He had a barrel of stuff in there to choose from, something for everything, from your big toe to your tummy, your ear. He'd want to crunch it all up for you. I'll never forget when he opened that bag at our hotel. I was astonished at the number of things in there, wondering what he'd do if by chance somebody swiped it or he lost it. This is going to make you feel fantastic, hun. Take it with a little scotch and you'll feel great in the morning. So he was always very busy with his doctor's bag. They were all prescriptions because he was an extremely nervous person. He had a lot of stomach and digestive troubles. He needed to take tranquilizers or felt he needed to. He was much more tense than people realized or that he appeared to be when he was trying to amuse everyone. I think his life was a strain every day no matter if he was trying to write or be with people. You can't imagine how much I tried. It was despairing. He stayed with us at our house for weeks. It didn't get any better. It just got worse. I wanted him to know how much I loved him by letting him come with his friends and stay indefinitely. But then it would become too much for anyone to deal with, especially when my children were around. He was no longer the Truman that I knew, so of course he could stay at my house for as long as he wanted. You're not going to reject the person you loved a great deal and had so many memorable times with. It's impossible to say you can't come and you can't bring so-and-so. It was very depressing, and I didn't want my children to see that day after day. The greatest way you can save somebody is by showing great love and support. I tried to do that but maybe it was too late. Holy cats, there is a little bit about Dear Princess Lee 
to add into your investigation. Now is a great time to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about Truman on the set of Neil Simon's Murder by Death. We're going to get in a little bit to the friendship with CZ and Truman back in a moment. Friends, we are back. Coming back into the television series with Truman Capote on set from some film set calling Babe Paley. In real life, this particular film set is a little film called Murder by Death. This whole film is really something. It is a Neil Simon play. I do have a little bit about Neil Simon writing about this particular time, which is kind of incredible. But in this scene, we really see Truman Capote self-destructing. In this scene, it is not the other actors and actresses within Murder by Death. He sees his swans instead around this table, ready for revenge. This particular scene is very reminiscent of the film Murder by Death. And honestly, I'm not surprised Truman is having visions. The scene is really well done, really diabolical. What did Slim say? We're going to close him out. It's all happening. Let me go ahead and give you Neil Simon talking about this particular play, Murder by Death, filmed in 1975. Neil Simon says, I wrote the original screenplay. In it, this amateur criminologist who turned out to be acted by Truman invites the five greatest detectives in the world, Nick and Nora Charles, Sam Spade, Charlie Chan, Agatha Christie, and Monsieur Poirot, to whom he will present a murder mystery so intricate that they can't solve it. He lives in this kind of castle. Where he got his money from, I haven't the foggiest, and there was a lot of fog in the picture. I had an ending in which Sherlock Holmes comes in to help out, but the Sherlock Holmes estate wouldn't let us use him. So the plot got very convoluted. In fact, over the years, I've gotten letters asking who really did it. <laughs> and I would write back, I haven't got the slightest idea. I was certainly provided with the greatest cast of actors I ever had. I came in on the first day of reading and there were Alec Guinness and Maggie Smith and David Niven and the others. They were wonderful. No complaining about their words or anything. Just a lot of laughing at each other. And Truman. Truman was the last person I would have thought of for the part of the mystery affectionado. On the other hand, Ray Stark, the producer, was always looking for publicity, perfectly willing to sacrifice the part and hire someone like Truman. For Truman, it was a lark. I had no problem with him. He didn't ask for rewrites or anything, but he was very ill at ease with the dialogue. He was a great raconteur. We all knew how funny he could be on his own, but he got stuck when he had lines to say. The big problem was that he just didn't know how to move. He kept looking for his marks. The little strips of masking tape put on the floor where you're supposed to stand. They kept saying, no, no, Truman, you can't look down. There was a moment when a door opens and Truman, dead with a knife in his back, is supposed to fall flat face forward. But as he was falling, you could see his eyes looking back and forth for his marks <laughs> to spot where he was supposed to fall. In that one, a few little wraparounds to our man Dominic Dunn. 
Ray Stark. Ray Stark, uh, really big in Dominic Dunn's world, along with Ray Stark's daughter, Wendy. We will talk about them in the future, as well as the ah, legendary and immortal David Niven. We have definitely talked about him in our investigation. Okay, so here are the swans closing them out. Again, next bit of film, Truman trying to make contact. Babe is getting sicker. We have the here, Slim, take all of my jewelry conversation and that little bit of sisterly bonding. Now, Slim did fool around with Bill Paley herself. That's not the story I'm going to get into today. There are other things to talk about within episode two. We move into the scene with CZ Guest and Truman Capote having lunch. Again, CZ Guest, pretty loyal to Truman. We have covered her swan profile in detail a long time ago. I want to talk about just a few quick quotes here about CZ because she really is one of the most loyal from Lester Persky. Truman was ostracized by many of his friends, yet some who had impeccable credentials in society were more loyal to him than ever. It was as if they wanted to prove to him that they were passionate in their loyalty and friendship. CZ Guest never for one moment turned her back on him. Kay Meehan, Carol Mathau, Felicia Lemon, Audrey Wilder, they've always been steadfast. John Knowles following up on this about CZ. There's a wonderful story about CZ Guest. When Truman got out of Silver Hill, he came to her house for lunch. Diana Vreeland was there. We had a wonderful lunch next to the Rose Garden. We went back to the guest house where the notorious nude painting of CZ by Diego Rivera was hanging on the wall. CZ walked in and said, well, there it is. That's the only way to deal with it. Take the bull by its horns. What did all those silly women expect a writer was going to do? Of course he was going to use the material sooner or later. Then she said, but then I never told Truman anything of importance. In the scene in the television series, CZ Guest is scolding Truman. <laughs> it's kind. It's not, it's not even angry, bless her. You know what you've done, Truman. She will scold Truman Capote here privately, not publicly. Something really brilliant here within the scene from Truman Capote. He says, why is it so hard for everyone to accept the idea that Society is filled with secrets and lies and allegiances and innuendos, and that was worth exposing. What did they all think I do? I'm always listening. I am recording. This is the way of our world. And CZ says, what about civility, reciprocity? And Truman's like, well, look at the writing itself. And CZ answers here in the scene, there is no love in those pages. It was too high a price to pay. Is this what you wanted, Truman, to be vilified, to be banished? CZ goes hard again privately. You're being careless with your gifts, your talents. And certainly, sure, Truman, I'll try to make an inroad with Babe with you. Here in the scene, right, Thanksgiving, the holiday is going to become a problem. Thanksgiving is Truman's favorite, favorite holiday. CZ invites him. CZ has to disinvite him. Slim shows up in the series to shut that down. Why have you had lunch with the traitor, Slim accuses CZ. 
all of this is pretty resonant. But again, behind the scenes, let's talk about some of these meetings and uh, meetups that happen where it is all so uncomfortable. Again, you have to remember we're dealing with a very, very tiny, small colony of people. (laughs) So when Truman shows up trying to make a way in, which he's trying to do with everyone, it is kind of constant rejection. From Slim Keith, she will say about Truman, Sometimes I used to see him in Quo Vadis when that was the place to have dinner or lunch. As he'd come in, I would be very busily eating my spinach while he passed the table. Never looked up. Never looked up at his face again. He would go back and forth and make phone calls, back and forth, back and forth, and I never. One day, babe walked in. She was going to have lunch with somebody. Her lunch date wasn't there yet. Sitting at a table were Phyllis Cerf and Truman. Truman looked up and said, Hello, Bobbling, and she said, Hello, Truman. Afterward, I told her, You're a traitor. We've sworn with our blood that we'd never speak to this man. Well, I didn't know what to do, Babe said. I mean, that's such bad manners. Bad manners, sweet woman. Got a few more meetings here. It's all so uncomfortable. John Richardson comments, Virginia Chambers was one of the closest friends of Babe Paley and her two sisters. Want to remind everybody, back on Not Done Yet, many moons ago, we did cover the fabulous Cushing sisters in detail. They are so interconnected into this colony. Remember, Babe does have two sisters known in history as the fabulous Cushing sisters. Their mom, Gogsy. The three Cushing sisters are a lot. Virginia Chambers, close friend of Babe and her sisters. Virginia was almost blind. She could just see her way around, but could barely distinguish people. One day, Babe Paley and I were lunching at Quo Vadis, waiting for Virginia. We were sitting on this little banquette in the corner of the bar when, to our horror, we saw that Truman had come in and was sitting bang on the way to our table. When he spotted Virginia blundering towards us, he waylaid her and pulled her down. At first, she didn't realize what was happening. But when Truman opened his mouth, I have to talk to you just here for a minute, she panicked. After the coat basque piece, there was no way she would talk to him. She struggled and got away. She arrived at our table outraged, but also thrilled. Kenneth J. Lane has this to say, Jimmy Fosberg, who was Babe's brother-in-law, had lunch with Truman at Quo Vadis. Everybody was up in arms. He was called on the carpet. Jimmy, what are you doing having lunch with Truman? He said, well, I felt sorry for him. I hadn't seen him in so long. It couldn't do any harm. No, they just refused to see him. I was having lunch with Betsy Whitney and Irene Selznick, and Truman's name came up. Irene brought it up, I think. Betsy simply said something almost with tears in her eyes because she was a very nice woman and she was fond of him. She said something like, I simply can't discuss him. And it was just cut off. This is all pretty resonant. And I don't know, in the words of Taylor Swift, Truman and Babe are never, ever, ever getting back together. Got one more here from Dotson Raider before we close out this segment to get into John O'Shea and Lily May. Dotson Raider 
talks about the fallout with Truman and Babe, saying, I was at a party at Josh Logan's. I remember showing up and Netta Logan coming at me like a water buffalo, snorting and just furious. I'd done a radio talk show the night before. I talked about Truman as a writer, what a great writer he was, and that I was astonished people would be so upset. She came barreling over to me. How dare you? You've been a friend of ours. You've been a guest in my house. How dare you go on television and defend this filth that little toad Truman has written? Well, Netta, it wasn't television. It was a radio interview, and I never even talked about what he'd written. I haven't read it myself. I heard you. I heard you. I was watching television last night. I said, I wasn't even on television last night. I told Truman about it. He said, oh my God, I'm collecting enemies among people I have never even met. The only one that hurt him was Babe. Truman was the kind of snob that is peculiar to gay people. Gays that become snobs are in a funny way more obsequious and more desperate than just simple social climbers. Thank you, Dotson Raider. Truman and Babe, again, not getting back together. What does Truman do? He goes to Joanne Carson, his new swan. Again, another true friend like CZ. Joanne's always going to help in this scene. You see, again, Truman from his UN apartment with all the paperweights. The set detail is just incredible. Jumping a bit to string this together, here we have Jack Dunphy, Truman's lover, since 1948 pleading with Babe Paley. I love this. Jack Dunphy uh, says, Truman, it's like astronomers see constellations. Just with him as a writer, give him absolution. Jack begs, save him. Babe says he has to save himself. Jack says you're his only chance. Babe, not giving him any quarter. This is a terrific time to take another quick break. When we come back, we are going to head across to the West Coast, hit Hollywood at Thanksgiving, meet Joanne Carson, John O'Shea, and Lily May. We have returned back into episode two with now Truman Capote in the series heading to Hollywood to spend his Thanksgiving holidays with Joanne Carson. John O'Shea, Truman's lover, is accompanying here. There's a little bit of drama in the series with the kids, and I am going and I'm not going, but the main point I really want you to get out of all of this is that John O'Shea is terrible for Truman Capote. He is abusive, and in the series, John O'Shea is mad about the way Truman Capote treats his kids. In reality, Truman Capote was actually very kind to Kate Harrington, John O'Shea's daughter. We Covered her story in a Not Done Yet episode last week. Want to go ahead and talk about some of Truman's friends and contemporaries talking about this very toxic, very destructive relationship with John O'Shea. First up, from my favorite swan made of moonbeams herself, Carol Marcus Mathau. She will say about this romance, unrequited love. They say that if you take away someone's first love, it can kill a person. Loss changes your body chemistry. The big love was Jack Dunphy. Jack always loved and protected him. But O'Shea was different. I thought he was a killer. I think he hastened Truman's death. 
Truman went into total pain about him. Truman never wrote me about O'Shea, but he talked about him. I thought I was going to meet God. When I met him, I saw this bank teller in a dark gray suit and puce-colored hair. That dirty blonde college boy color? He looked like any other bank teller who doesn't really have much to say. Some people are very charming in their inability to say things. He was so ordinary that it was breathtaking. I said to Truman, you have this weird fascination for the ordinary. John Knowles, really just one sentence, but I think it sums it up here pretty well. John Knowles said to Truman, Truman, you're heading for the whitewater with this one. Maria Teresa Kane says, Truman and Johnny O'Shea rented a house in Mendocino. I remember they're drinking a lot of vodka. I never been a heavy drinker, so I would drink maybe one glass of wine for every three or four they were drinking. O'Shea was really a drunk, so it quickly became uncomfortable to be around him. But Truman was crazy about him. Their relationship was totally puzzling to me. Here was Johnny O'Shea, who had been ostensibly happy, married as a heterosexual for 20 years when Truman came into the picture. He had four children. I didn't ever understand Truman's friendship with Peg, O'Shea's wife. One day he called to say he wanted to bring Peg to San Francisco. I asked who she was and he said, well, it's Johnny O'Shea's wife. And I thought, this is a bizarre play. Now he's bringing the wife here? And he did. She'd never been to California, so he brought her out to show her around. Don't you find that bizarre? And she was so fond of him. He showed her all around San Francisco, took her shopping on Union Square, took her to Gump's. Truman loved the Blinis and Caviar at Alexis's restaurant, which used to be across from the Fairmont Hotel. He took us there. She was very sweet with him. Truman was very sweet to her, and everyone was very sweet to everyone else, even though he had run off with her husband. No discussion at all. He had a separate friendship with her entirely. Herb Kane recalls, I recall being shocked. I, I guess I led more of a sheltered existence than I realized. Truman alluded to his romance with O'Shea. He'd say, well, he has the most perfect penis. They invited us to come up there. It wasn't the invitation I was really looking for, but I drove up to Mendocino and there they were all in this falling down, dirty, frontier-like mountain cabin. It was awful. O'Shea was sitting there with his vest on, but the tie off, still looking Boston, drinking beer and watching some sporting event on the tube that Truman couldn't have cared less about. We spent the night there. Truman had said, bring your sleeping bags. So we did. It was a very strange experience. O'Shea was a hard guy to figure. Very sad man. Obviously going through some terrible torment. He talked about his wife and the kids quite often. After the third or fourth Irish whiskey, I remember he said the words, a natural relationship. If there were two people who didn't belong together, it was Truman and this jock banker. Carol Marcus Mathout, this may be my very, very favorite thing Carol Marcus has ever said. From Carol, O'Shea and Truman and I went out to lunch at the bistro one day. 
Toward the end of the lunch, I wanted to be dead because O'Shea began to speak to Truman in this humiliating fashion, humiliating him in front of me. I stopped him. I said, John, I have a gun in my purse. I'm a perfect shot and I'm old. And I can sit in jail and reread Proust. I'm going to shoot you. They all started laughing and it was over. But the whole thing was very painful to me. I love Carol Marcus. I have a gun in my purse. I'm a perfect shot and I'm old and I can sit in jail and reread Proust. I love it. Alan Schwartz recalls about the relationship with John O'Shea and Truman. This relationship with O'Shea became very violent. Guns being pointed and talk about guns and so on. Truman had a 38 caliber detective revolver. He was telling me about how O'Shea pulled the gun or he pulled the gun on O'Shea and all this and all that. I took the gun away from him. I dumped half of it in the East River and half of it in the Hudson River. I remember telling one of my law partners, I can't figure out where to throw this. He said, what the hell is that? I said, this is half of Truman Capote's gun. About a month later, Truman asked for his gun. Where is it? I said, I dumped it. He said, what? I said, I threw it away and you're not going to get another one. That's the way I used to talk to him. This sense of violence was not only at the UN Plaza, but also in California, in Malibu, where they took a house for a while. O'Shea had fuck you on his California license plates. Since they were always drunk, you can imagine how the police loved that, right? Got Lester Persky again, talking about... John O'Shea and the relationship with his kids and Truman. This is a real fascinating slice, I think. Lester Persky says, Once John was with Truman, these O'Shea kids were sort of abandoned. The funny thing is that the children came to hate the father and love Truman. He played an avuncular, almost fatherly role. When they had a problem or needed money or something, Truman would take care of them. He was very proud of them. His relationship with O'Shea, however, was very stormy. After an initial three months, things were cooling between them. O'Shea had fallen in love with a girlfriend who was an actress. Things were reaching a critical point. Truman flew out to Los Angeles because he couldn't reach O'Shea on the phone. The house was empty. All the furniture was gone. O'Shea, according to Truman, had cleaned out his bank account and disappeared. The Answered Prayers manuscript was gone. Truman, because of the publicity, was afraid to go to the police. They hired a private detective to try to find O'Shea, mostly concerned to get his manuscript back. Truman was very distraught, crying to me over the phone about all the years down the drain. All he had were notes. It would take him 12 more years to redo the book. This was his main shot, his streetcar and the one he'd been babbling on about for so many years. His whole career rested on this one book, and John O'Shea had it. At least, that's what Truman thought. Truman told me a story about having lunch with Jan Cushing at Quo Vadis, with some guy who apparently had connections, owned hotels in Las Vegas, and knew everybody out there. Jan said, Why don't you go talk to him about it? So Truman told him, and this man said, I'm going to make a phone call to Las Vegas. He came back and said, 
We've got someone going out to L.A. on the next flight. That manuscript will be on the red eye to New York tonight. When we find them, do you want me to leave them a message? He added with a chuckle. Dreamin asked, Well, what do you mean a message? The man gestured like an arm was going to be chopped. Truman said, you can break a few bones, but don't hurt his pelvis. The next day, Truman called me absolutely tubular. This courier had come in from L.A. with the manuscript. He gave Truman the license number of O'Shea's car, the license number of the girlfriend's car, where the girlfriend worked, their address, their phone number. Whether that's the truth, I don't know. Jan Cushing will recall. When the relationship with John broke up, Truman called up Mrs. O'Shea and said, I've done a terrible thing. I will support you the rest of my life. I'm terribly sorry, and I want to help in any way I can. I would like to get your daughter the best modeling job. It was part guilt, but he also loved the children. He went on Mother's Day with Mrs. O'Shea to the school, and that's very sweet because, let's face it, he had screwed up a family for children. All of that is true. Truman, Capote, and John O'Shea, toxic with a capital T. John and Truman are attending Thanksgiving at Joanne Carson's in Hollywood. Joanne Carson here, portrayed by Molly Ringwald. Joanne Carson is one of Truman's swans in the Hollywood set when, and most especially when his New York City set dumped him. Joanne Carson moved in as a swan to Truman a bit before. Joanne married Johnny Carson in 1963 to sort of set the stage for you here. Let's go ahead and hear from Joanne Carson about how she meets Truman. Joanne Carson says, I met Truman in the mid-60s. Johnny and I were going to Barbados for a week, a honeymoon. Bennett Cerf was a very close friend of mine, always supplying me with must-read books. He sent over In Cold Blood the day we were leaving for Barbados. I got on the plane and started reading it. I read it all the way, all the way through Customs, all the way to Frenchman's Cove, all the way through the drive to our cottage. And when we got there, Johnny said, I'll just take a shower and we'll eat dinner. I sat down and continued reading. He came out of the shower. I was still reading. We had dinner. I was still reading. He went to bed. I was still reading. This, in essence, was our honeymoon. And I put the book down, I think, about five o'clock in the morning. It was the first book I ever read where I felt I was being told a story. I wasn't conscious of reading it. I called Bennett in New York and said, I must meet him. He has got to be the most fabulous person. I finally met him at the Surf's. Their dining room was quite large. I was sitting at Truman's table, but opposite him. He was very animated with his hands. There was a tremendous amount of energy coming from him that absolutely fascinated me. After dinner, he came by my table and said, Bennett tells me you're quite an extraordinary lady. Come, let's chat. He took me into a library alcove sat me down on a couch, patted me on the hand, and said, Now, my dear, tell me all about yourself. With me, that's a very dangerous thing to do because I literally will tell somebody all about myself. So I launched into the story of my life. Basically, what intrigued Truman most was that I had been raised in a convent or by aunts and grandparents and not by my parents. He drew similarities to his own childhood, 
which I didn't know at the time because I hadn't read A Christmas Memory. Truman said to me, my dear, we are going to be great friends. At the end of the evening, people were leaving going home. He took out his little appointment book and said, I will meet you tomorrow at 12 o'clock in the lobby of the UN Plaza and we'll have lunch. He was very precise, 12 o'clock sharp. So the next day at 12, I was in the lobby. He nodded and said, I like that. He liked promptness. If Truman was coming to our apartment at the UN Plaza for dinner at 8, Johnny and I would sit in the kitchen and watch the IBM digital clock on the building across the way. The minute it went to 8 o'clock, Truman would ring the doorbell. It was kind of a joke about the digital clock. We always claimed that Truman stood outside the door and waited to make sure he rang the doorbell exactly at 8 o'clock. From the UN Plaza, we walked to his favorite lunch restaurant, an Italian restaurant. I noticed he had a book under his arm. I thought, how nice, it's a present for me. But when we got to the restaurant and sat down, he put the book next to him, so I thought, well, it's not for me. He ordered my lunch. He didn't ask what I wanted. He didn't ask what I wanted for dessert. At dessert, the waiter came with an empty silver platter and handed it to Truman. He took it with one hand, and with the other, he put the book on it and put it in front of my place. That was my dessert, his copy of A Christmas Memory. It was inscribed to the real Holly Golightly. Truman took over my life from that moment. He choreographed our entire relationship. Johnny loved Truman. Because Truman took to me so instantly, Johnny used to say, well, he was my friend first, which he was absolutely Johnny's friend first. But from the day I met him, Truman and I were joined at the hips. Again, Joanne Carson, thoroughly allegiant to Truman. Truman will spend his last days with Joanne Carson in the mid-1980s. Now is a terrific time to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to wind it down a little bit. We're going to talk about that Thanksgiving scene being chaos and entering in Truman's mother, Lily Mae Falk, also known as Nina Capote, that is the key to everything. Back in just a moment. This Thanksgiving scene, Truman isn't going with all of his friends. He's going with Joanne Carson. And the juxtaposition, I think, in these two scenes in the series is interesting to see because the Thanksgiving scene is chaos. Nachos and tamales. Although that caftan that Joanne Carson is rocking is totally my jam. In the opposite scene, we flash to the swans together. Both Thanksgiving tables are saying blessings back and forth. It's a really interesting way that scene plays out. But the main point here is that Truman Capote really spiraling. John O'Shea is going to act terrible. Joanne Carson is going to protect Truman. Truman, we can see, is really very much in crisis in his addiction. He's spiraling. He's going down, down, down. And here, the crux of it all, enter Lily Mae Falk. Truman's first swan, his mother, and Jessica Lang, incredible. She is a queen. She is stunning, coming in hot here as Lily May. I'm going to bring this all back to my Truman is writing answered prayers, Lakote Basque, 
1965, about a decade earlier. Lily May, Truman Capote's mother, who he has a very complicated relationship with, does pass away in 1954, right before Truman Capote meets Babe Paley. Truman has his New York City swans, Carol Marcus, Gloria Vanderbilt, Una O'Neill, Harper Lee too, oh, Phoebe Pierce Vreeland, Jennifer Jones, and Marilyn Monroe by this point, especially up and through 1954. But Lily May, oh, Truman's mother, she is his most influential swan. We have covered the relationship with Truman and Lily May back within Capote's Coterie, which is really the relationship for Truman to understand for why and how he does everything else. Today in this episode, I am going to dig into Lily May's death in 1954 a little bit. Here, as we're seeing in the show in 75, Truman Capote's Drunken Holiday, Thanksgiving has always been his thing. And here, Lily May, Jessica Lang, Queen, making that role happen, she is going to show up. And in this scene, it rush, just incredible. Lily May is talking to Truman. Truman sees her handcuffed to a ghost, right? Lily May says, oh, Truman, you've avenged me. All those people that I wanted to be part of who had no time for me. Those women of New York society who would have no part of me. Just like your swans. You knew how I felt southern, odd, a little trashy. I love the southern twang that she says that with, a little trashy. You took them out so brilliantly for me with surgical precision. Remember Lily May, teenage pregnancy, leaves Truman with her family for going on nine years until Lily May remarries. Joe Capote brings Truman to New York City. And all Lily May wants to do is be one of that cafe society and again, never really accepted. She tries. I think there is a lot to unpacking this relationship with Lily May's endless reaching and how Truman gets to channel this through his mom many, many years later. Truman in the television scene says, what now, mother? She says, join me. Let me be your mother again. I can be your guide. Come on, darling. You're almost there already. Talk about being handcuffed to a ghost. Truman is chained to his mother. Lily May in this scene is encouraging Truman to unalive himself. The acting, the lighting, the costuming, again, beautifully done. And Truman says, I'm not ready. I'm not on your schedule. I'm not going anywhere with you. Truman in this scene has the last word with his mom, Lily May, but I feel it may not stay that way. So a little bit more to unpack here with Lily May. Again, she dies in 1954, right before Truman getting pulled into the babe circle at all, but it really is connected. I've got a few more passages here from Truman's friends and companions to maybe break down why this scene is so key. This is Phoebe Pierce Vreeland, one of Truman's earliest swans, loyal, devoted friend. Phoebe Pierce Vreeland says, 
His mother never liked me. Truman always said it was because she felt I was the one woman to whom he was drawn emotionally. For whatever reason, we never did get along. One day, when Truman was in Taormina, she called me out of the blue and invited me to lunch. I thought to myself, well, this is really peculiar. So we went out to lunch, and she was sort of rambling on, not drunk or anything. And I realized that what she was trying to do was apologize to me for having been unpleasant. A bit later, when I was working for Gourmet, Leo Lerman called me at the magazine and said, Did you know that Nina has died? Remember, Lily May reinvents herself as Nina when she moves to New York. Phoebe Pierce Vreeland says, Nina was young. She certainly wasn't 50. Because she was married at no age at all, dumped Arch at no age at all, so I said, did she have a heart attack? No, worse than that. Oh, God, cancer? Worse than that. You mean she's killed herself? Yes, get a hold of Truman. I wrote him a long letter, which I sent to him at 1060, which was the only place I knew. I guess for public consumption, they had said that she had died of something else. Heart. There were different stories. I'm not trying to tell you my troubles, because I hate that, but a couple of years later, my mother killed herself. Truman called me. He said, you know Nina killed herself. I said, yes, I do know that. We couldn't even talk to each other about it. People who were raised in the Depression and went through the war are not expecting the rainbow trail to stretch. But the most devastating thing is to have your mother kill herself. What is so awful is when a person kills themselves, you can't say wonderful things about them. You can't talk to your friends, really. Everybody's very polite, and they don't talk about it, and they try to cheer you up. It almost dragged me down, 20 years to get over it. Truman never broke stride, but I think that's the major unhealed wound in his life. There's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing anyone can do about it except rent a soundproof room and take a whole bunch of plates and throw them at walls and scream and yell and do it for a year every day. I think in her case, it was just despair. She was never someone with a terribly strong hold on life. She didn't know what she wanted. She was the kind of person you could have given anything. I mean anything. A big apartment, but who had no idea of what could please her. Nothing. It's a question of once you lose the appetite for life, you can't be told, well, buck up. It's a great world. There's something in most all of us that enables us. A vitality, a wellspring, something to keep us going. But once you lose that... Like a crack in the foundation of a house that is not apparent, the whole thing of Nina's suicide affected Truman. I think it was central. He was an only child. He had been in a way responsible for Nina and failed. In many ways, Truman was the parent and she was the child. Perhaps her death paved the way for Babe Paley and so forth. I hate pop psychology. I don't think he was looking for a mother. I don't know what he was looking for. Some woman, somebody glamorous, somebody wonderful, somebody perfect. Got another really insightful quote about Nina, Lily Mae from Eleanor Freed. She says, 
I happened to be in Florida at the home of McKinley Cantor. My husband was his editor. Truman called and said Nina had died. It was Thanksgiving weekend. I had lunch with her just before, and at that time, things were very bad. She'd given up drinking, but she drank coffee, 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 coffee. She was shaking. She was very nervous. She was very ragged. We used to love to have a drink. We'd have a drink before lunch, but this day she had coffee first and coffee, coffee. Then she put on her lipstick. She used bright red lipstick, which everybody did in those days. She had a brush with it. She was poking into the bottom of the lipstick with it. She said, we have no more money left and I'm using the last of my lipsticks. She wouldn't buy a lipstick, which I thought was very funny because even I could afford a lipstick. But she wasn't herself. There's no doubt about it. From Andreas Brown, let's unpack a little bit more of Lily May here. Truman was just starting to make a lot of money. If what he said is at all accurate, he literally turned over most of his money to his stepfather in a desperate attempt to bail him out. But it was too late, and it was very clear that Joe Capote would be indicted by the federal government, convicted as a felon, and would have to go to prison. The anticipation of this terrible disgrace to Truman's mother was evidently more than she could bear, and she committed suicide. A traumatic shock to Truman. He had to rush back from Europe and make all the arrangements. It seems reasonable to conclude that this suicide was so devastating to Truman that it became an obsession, a focal point to his life. He adored his mother, who, as difficult as she was, as cruel as she had been to him, in effect abandoning him as an infant, was glamorous, larger than life, a survivor. She had succeeded in her dreams. She had found a rich man, aggressively achieved an elegant lifestyle, been accepted by cafe society. Though her dream had come true, she was still vigorously pursuing it, as some people do, compulsively. You can see examples today right here in New York. Many of the very people Capote socialized with go to the so-called jet-set restaurants on any given day, and here are all the current Mrs. Capotes. In effect, her obsession with being accepted by these people, her addiction to their lifestyle, is in all probability what destroyed her and in turn her husband. These circumstances and events would seem to provide Capote's motivation for writing answered prayers. It's a kind of retribution or at the very least an exposure of the foibles and the foolishness of their lives. That this world of glamour and superficial values can easily dazzle and confuse and mislead impressionable, naive younger people to want all of these things and to pursue them with a desperation almost like an addiction to a drug. It can end up very easily destroying people, and it does, and seems to have done just that in the case of Nina and Joe Capote. It certainly would explain why Capote had this long-term motivation to write this great Proustian novel about contemporary wealth and cafe jet-set society. 
His archives reveal that he began to think about such a book very early on, very soon after his mother's death. So, it fits. Capote got sidetracked doing In Cold Blood, but he continued to take notes and to talk and think about answered prayers. Capote's whole life was haunted by abandonment. One visualizes this sensitive, precocious child waiting for his mother to come home to rural Alabama for one of her rare brief visits and watching her leave that same day or the next day, never knowing when she was going to come back. His mother was always interested in something else. He wasn't important to her, and he knew it absolutely. And yet, he needed her desperately. I think that's why her suicide emerged as an event of immense importance. Somebody destroyed his mother. That had to be his feeling. She didn't kill herself because she was bored or because she didn't like herself. His mother was enjoying her lifestyle. Somebody killed my mother. Something took her away. Who did that? Who did that to me? That would be the question he must have asked himself almost on an unconscious level. So he had to be filled with bitterness and a need for retribution, or at least some kind of redirection of those anxieties and those angers and frustrations. And I think he channeled it into answered prayers. I've got one more terribly, terribly sad quote here from Jack Dunphy, Truman's long-term lover. He will say, I came back to the hotel from the dentist one day to find Truman putting down the phone in the bedroom. Nina was dead. I felt she killed herself, but refrained from saying so. Truman was not sad, only stunned. He flew home alone. She had him, even if she did not know it. She had got him home, brought him down. She fixed it so he would have to sit by her coffin, shaking hands and getting his full of banalities for hours, as she, let it be remembered, had never sat by him, not when he was little, not when he was growing up, never. He would do it for her. He would do it for other grown-ups who thought he should. He would do it because he felt it was expected of him. He did it despite the price he had to pay, as he did everything that he should not have done, because the price he paid was too great. He was not like other sons. He was better. He was this instrument, this finely tuned thing made of nerves that helped him catch the nuances of things and record them. His sitting there beside Nina was a waste. He could never talk about it. It was too black a farce he played. The homecoming son who sat remembering how he came near to pushing this dead mother, he was now dutifully burying out the window of their ill-furnished, nearly empty Park Avenue apartment. Dying, she pulled him back to her, dragged the phoenix down to her level, but of course he would rise again. That was the beauty of it. I came home. Joe went to Ossining where Truman visited him, but that was the end. 
When he, Joe, came out, he married a mad woman, then died swearing eternal love to Nina. The phoenix soared free, his wounds invisible to all but me. Oh, Jack Dunphy. So sad. In wrapping down the end of this particular episode two, we end up with the swans talking about light bulbs on their holiday. Bill is sticking with Babe. She says, I guess this must be a little bit what peace looks like. But Babe misses Truman. I wonder where he is today. Again, the swans talking, and I think we've seen this illustrated within these two episodes, just the fallout. Truman misjudging how much we all loved him and how much he could hurt us. That is definitely true. Was Truman a toy? Was he a prop? Was he singing for his supper? There was something interesting in those passages that nobody minded if you dropped Truman. It certainly wasn't going to alienate you from the social set. Within the series closing it out, we are back to John O'Shea. We've unpacked that. It's all bad. They have an out-and-out brawl on screen. Babe has dumped Truman. He's in a toxic relationship with John O'Shea, and Truman really, really never recovers from the publication of Lacote Basque 1965, although he will live another decade. The name of this episode is Ice in Their Veins. Babe is being treated for her cancer, but honestly, the swans here are acting pretty cold. Truman is shut out. I want to close it down with one final quote here from Kate Harrington, John O'Shea's daughter, about this fallout. Kate Harrington says, It was tragic. It was so sad. I remember thinking, oh no, another tragedy. Another house was crumbling. When is this going to end? Truman went into a colossal depression. It was as if there had been a death in the family. I walked around quietly at the UN Plaza and didn't play the record player. I'd answer the phone for him. Slowly, the phone stopped ringing, and there weren't so many calls. I remember being so defensively bitter about it myself and thinking, well, that shows how shallow those people always were because they drop you like that. We sat for many, many weeks just hibernating. I did my work and stuff. I was 17 or 18. I used to sit on the edge of his bed, and he wouldn't get out of bed, and the days would turn into nights. He never opened the blinds, and I'd sit and we'd talk. He was so upset he'd cry, and he'd go in and out of that thing that someone does when they've done something tragic where they have remorse. I thought that people would be mad for a while, but then I thought they'd come back, but they didn't. He was staggered by that. He never truly picked up again. A few blips of pulling himself together. For two years, he sort of went on, but it was never the same. He went heavily into the drinking and drugging. There were some loyal folks, but they weren't the main people. Joe Petrachek and Myron Clement were sweet friends who loved him, and Lester Persky. CZ Guest was great. She was a love. She's a lady. And Joanne Carson. Oh, 
Do you feel bad for Truman? Do you feel bad for the swans? Really is a lot to unpack. That, my darlings, is going to take us through Alicia's version of episode two. We'll be back next time with episode three, the black and white ball. We have covered both with Truman and the original black and white ball, Dominic Dunn's 1964 black and white ball. But next week, we're coming to all the lead up, the whole ball, the fallout, so many spider webs coming for you next week. Thank you, friends, for tuning in today and your support in all the ways, listening and spending your time with me, for telling your friends, for promoting the podcast, and for your support on Patreon, too. Y'all are so much appreciated. For my Patreon folks, we are going to continue our journey with Joan Didion over on Not Done Yet. We have some other intriguing stories to share about Joan Didion, Dominic Dunn's sister-in-law. Be on the lookout for those coming midweek. Until we meet again, friends and investigators, when we do, thank you again for tuning in. You know that I want you to stay curious and keep on investigating. Have a tremendous week. Big love, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at Done and Done Podcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.